and welcome to Two Bye Guys. My name is Jacob Engelberg. And I'm Rob. Welcome back, Jacob. Thank you for having me again, Rob. Yeah, thanks for guest hosting again. My pleasure. And we are back to continue our lovely interview with Shiri Eisner, who we had such an interesting conversation with we just had to split it up into two parts <laughs> yes i was very happy she agreed to go overtime with us we uh we really got some nice time with her i think we were we were on a roll and yeah, yeah why not so um yeah i think we took kind of hosts prerogative um with with this section and and wanted to explore some of the things that were that were pertinent to us um as as jewish bisexuals um so that's where this this section starts and so i've been thinking a little bit about the relationship between jewishness and queerness um when i was doing my undergrad i i read some some really fascinating stuff around kind of early 20th century anti-Semitism, um, often having very gendered ideas about Jewish people, um, about Jewish men being um, overly effeminate and um, kind of puny, um, and Jewish women being um, dominating, domineering, um, and how these are very kind of um, gendered sexual stereotypes. Um, but some of this writing um, tends to kind of think about the kind of the resonance of that for people who are interested in queerness um, and to think about um, Jewishness and gender transgression, perhaps. Um, so that has been kind of the the extent of of my thinking about the relationship between between Jewishness and and sexuality. Um, but I think Sherry manages to kind of make some more really really pertinent connections um, between the two, and it's a real example of kind of how we were discussing last episode about how some of our insights around bisexuality can inform our politics in in other areas um mm-hmm. and it's the and it's the kind of politics that i because uh, so the term identity politics these days can sometimes be used in a way that's talking about people of all different kind of political persuasions just representing people of certain groups um with no thought about how those identities inform that politics but instead, um, there's a kind of more radical tradition of um, identity politics that I see Shiri's work a, as part of um, that takes the kind of aspects of your identity that regular society deems the most troublesome and actually sees the power in that. And I think our conversation um, in this section um, is really working through what it is about Jewishness, what it is about bisexuality that is most threatening to society and what we can do with that politically. That It's really interesting you put it that way because like my Jewishness and bisexuality is another thing like the politics that we talked about last time that Mm-hmm. I never had really connected those two until I read her book, but they are so connected. And my Jewishness really primed me to come out as bi 
in hindsight because like I went to a reform temple and like there was no queerness growing up in my Jewish life. Like I didn't know any queer people at the temple. It wasn't a thing that was talked about explicitly, but Mm -hmm. it was a reform temple that was sort of modernizing traditions and making changes and very open-minded about gender and gender roles. And we had a female assistant rabbi and uh, Mm -hmm. we would, they would play guitar during services, like stuff that my dad at his conservative temple, he grew, he grew up at, would never be allowed, let alone that yeah. people can sit wherever they want and men and women can sit together. Like, so right. it was like a, and my rabbi always talked about questioning everything. And when you read Torah, it's it's an invitation to ask questions and to think about how the world should be, and like mm. not not to just accept what's written there as the law. Mm. Uh, that that was the kind of Jewishness I was brought up with, and so. I didn't come out or realize I was queer because of that. But later when I did realize I was bi, it fit so much uh, in terms of looking at the world and questioning things and looking for a better way and breaking everything down. And, and also at the same time, I had such a sense of community in my temple. I think sort of what you just said reminded me of that, that like I, I saw how, you could be persecuted for being Jewish. And I was told all those stories and we met yeah. Holocaust survivors and I knew people in other communities that were not as Jewish where it was a thing. Or if I traveled to somewhere that wasn't as Jewish, you know, you would get misunderstanding and people yeah. saying shitty things or, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism out there and there were hate crimes. Sure. So, sure. but I did live in a place where there were a lot of Jewish people and a, we had a big, congregation of lovely people and so Uh i got to experience how that community is a good shield and a good defense and how Mm. you know uniting and solidarity is 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 how you push back that anti-semitism and stay you know stay true to yourself absolutely so it's all connected yeah, I, it's strange. I had a very similar um, kind of experience growing up um, to you, and I was I went to a Jewish uh, high school, and my favorite uh, lesson was Jewish studies because I, um, especially when I had a, a certain teacher who I would um, sometimes go and have lunch with, so we could kind of debate certain issues. I was that like little nerdy kid, um, <laughs> but. But the thing was, she would she would always really encourage me to to kind of debate things out and to to be inquisitive and to ask questions. And even though she was a orthodox religious Jewish woman, and and I was definitely not, um, it was something that was encouraged and. Um, yeah, something that definitely informed my questioning of all kinds of received wisdoms, I suppose, uh, to to actually ask the questions when things don't seem to make sense now. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we begin discussing in this episode, um, which I think is a really important discussion, is how there are some issues that growing up in at least our Jewish education were kind of beyond the pale, which is namely being critical of the state of Israel. And in this sense, it was really useful to, to have to have Shiri to 
to discuss this stuff with because I think at least for me growing up um, and learning about Israel in Jewish communal groups, I would never have even guessed that there were Jewish people in the state of Israel who were critical of it, let alone there being Jewish anti-Zionist groups operating within Israel, Jewish-Palestinian leftist solidarity as well. And I think it's only really in recent years um, that people are getting brave enough to, to... a, speak out about these things, but also beginning to learn more than um, than what we were taught growing up, which, in my opinion, it's an incredibly kind of impoverished education we get around Israel-Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it takes a diversion into those issues in ways that I hope um, people will agree uh, uh we still kind of link it back to these ideas around um around bisexual politics um one of the things that shiri talks about is that bisexuals are often considered um kind of traitors against the the gay community by kind of infecting the gay community through our proximity to straightness. Um, And she draws a connection between that and being considered a traitor against one's own country, um, which is a much more kind of literal form of traitorousness that she embodies in her, in her activist life. Yeah. Yeah. That was very interesting. Uh, I had never thought about that. And, and also, like you said, I had the same experience of like, not hearing really any criticism of Israel growing up um, and just kind of like a, you're Jewish, you support it kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I learned more, a little more as I grew up, especially outside of the temple. But um, the, my my biggest experience of what you just talked about is when I went on birthright, which is like a right. free trip to Israel for any Jewish young person from is it just America or is it anywhere? It's anywhere. It's anywhere, yeah. It's anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I went about 10 years ago and, you know, it's kind of like meant to make you hot on Israel and kind of show you how great it is. And they did that in many ways. But we also traveled around with some Israelis like they, you know, they were in the military at the time, but they were our age. They were in their 20s. Right. And some of them were very critical of Israel. And I think that Mm. on birthright, they're kind of not supposed to be, but, you know, they're real people and they're human beings and they were. And Mm. that was kind of the first time I realized, oh, there's a lot of criticism from within. And like, it's a country just like ours where not everyone thinks the same way. And if the government Mm. is acting this way, like they're going to be progressive or radical or queer people pushing back against that from within. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting and I think part of the kind of fear for for lots of Jewish people who are doing this kind of learning around things that they might not have been taught links back to this idea of um, fear of being rejected by one's own community because you are deemed um, a traitor. And I think a, a large part of what the Israeli state has been trying to do um, in its diplomatic efforts internationally is to cast any kind of criticism of it as anti-Semitism. And as Jews in the diaspora who know very painfully what the reality of anti-Semitism is, 
to publicly criticize Israel today is to risk being deemed a self-hating Jew, is to risk being accused of um, stoking the flames of of anti-Semitism. And it really plays upon this kind of fear, this fear of community rejection um, that we've talked about as bi people. We we know that so so intimately how how scary that that prospect can be. That's why there are people with bisexual desires who stay closeted or pretend to be gay when they might want to to have experimented more perhaps um it's that fear of being rejected by one's community and mm-hmm. i think the thing that i would say nowadays is that we need to we need to be more courageous than be guided um by those fears and for anyone who's been kind of keeping up with the news to come out of israel palestine in in recent years um <laughs> I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to, to see that um, we cannot kind of afford to be silent around, around this. And that's where I think Shiri in her anti-Zionism um, is, is really leading the way for what a, what a Jewish left looks like in the future. Yeah, that just really interesting what you said, because it makes me think about how you and Shiri in the interview are connecting the oppression that we experience. Like sometimes I try mm. to connect my my own experience or how I feel inside to what it's like to be this type or this thing. And actually mm-hmm. sometimes what connects us is the oppression and the oppression is mm. similar being bi and speaking out about that. Like the, mm. the bi phobia you get actually has parallels to speaking out against a political regime and the backlash you'll get from that and, you know, other types of oppression. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think the it can be scary when you fear that you don't have kind of community around you. But I hope, I'm sure, what your podcast has kind of exposed people to is the, the fact that there is a community out there, and perhaps it's um, more digital than IRL. But those are boundaries that are very blurred these days, anyway. But there, that we can find um, a like-minded community, and the great thing about kind of radical left political projects is this idea of solidarity. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you find community only with people who are just like you, but it means that you find community based on the same values as other people, and knowing that you're going to have their back and they're going to have yours, um, which is something kind of um, profoundly awe-inspiring when it comes to making your community through your politics. Indeed, absolutely. So we've probably natted away long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We should give you this interview that we've been talking about. It's me, Rob and Shiri for the second half of our interview, talking about identity, Jewishness, Zionism, anti-Zionism, all the above. We, We don't hold any punches, so I hope you enjoy. So in terms of thinking through that idea of kind of taking things about our identities and um, kind of thinking through what 
values we might learn from them and how we might engage with that. I wanted to touch on um, Jewishness, and this is the this is a very Jewish episode you've got yourself for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably your most Jewish episode yet. This um, is going to be the most Jewish, radical, queer, bisexual <laughs> ep- podcast episode that's ever existed <laughs> between the yeah. three of us. <laughs> and I'm sure, like all of our experiences of Jewishness, are a little different. Shuri's in Israel, Palestine. You're in the US, Rob. I'm in England. Rob and I are Ashkenazi, Shiri's Mizrahi. Um, I don't know what our levels of observance are. Not that that necessarily matters to what we're <laughs> what we're talking about, but I think there are some interesting connections between Jewishness um, and bisexuality. Thinking specifically, kind of in terms of the experience of oppression, um, and yeah, I was just wondering. Sherry, do you have any kind of initial thoughts about these about these connections? Yeah, I have so many like Jewish bi feels, <laughs> and <laughs> and and this is weird because like it it took me many many years um, to acknowledge um, Jewishness as a non oppressive identity because right. here it is absolutely you know. It's it's horrible because the the state of Israel has completely co-opted Jewishness and what being Jewish means and turned it into something terrible. So it did take me a lot of time to to realize that this is the exception, it's not the rule. And also to acknowledge, you know, a, a lot of um Jewish, um, I don't know, characteristics, I guess, in my own experience, like feeling always out of place, feeling like you don't have a particular connection to, you know, to, to physical geography, to, you know, geographical spaces, especially here in Israel. Which you know, it, it's always you know that that's like the um, the proverbial argument of you know of Zionism is like Israel is the historical home of of the Jewish people, but no one is from here. I'm not from here. My family is not from here. My grandmother comes from Iraq. My uh, grandparents on my father's side came from Germany, and I'm sure they all have had much more meaningful connections and knowledge of of their countries, um, you know, where they originated than here. And you know, feeling like you don't quite belong anywhere is a very Jewish and a very bi thing. Um, feeling displaced. But also um, the idea of making space for yourself wherever you are, which is like a very, very Jewish thing, especially in the diaspora. Taking your, your culture with you, recognizing your people, but also working to change the society that you live in. And um, I don't know. I mean, there, there's also that thing about whiteness um, and privilege that both Jewishness and bisexuality are always attached to. 
which which I really hate, <laughs> you know, both as a Jewish person and as a bi person, always to be assumed to be white and privileged, <laughs> and, and especially you know uh, Jews and and you know and money and all those anti-Semitic tropes, which like I don't know, it, it kind of it tastes the same, you know what I mean? When yeah. you know, when these accusations are forwarded solely based on the cultural connotation of what you are and and on the actual reality of our lives yeah though i find those connections so so pertinent um particularly that idea of kind of taking from the experience of being a minority or being marginal and um and working to make our spaces better to make to kind of set those examples ourselves that I feel like is quite a, a diaspora hasn't quite a diaspora quality to it as well and I think recent I mean I'm I'm maybe somewhat biased in terms of what spaces I mix in but it does seem like recently there's been a renewed interest in traditions of Jewish anarchism Jewish trade unionism Bundism um the the big kind of histories of Jewish anti-Zionism and people forget that the state of Israel is less than 100 years old. Um, it has not been the kind of cornerstone of, of Jewish community life that it certainly was in the communities that I grew up in, in the UK. But people are uh, re rediscovering that kind of pride in being a stranger in a foreign land Um doing the best for for the the working people around you um in your community um that there's there's nothing shameful about that and i think a lot of zionists try to paint those kind of diaspora values as i mean i mean it's very tied up with these ideas of um israeli masculinity um uh, in comparison with the kind of um weak Jew who's a minority in their land or or whatever um i i like seeing that value in existing <laughs> differently sorry i i didn't quite know how to finish that <laughs> no but, but that, that was sense. all very very true and and it also you know recognizing the really amazing um, radical anarchist traditions within diasporic Jewish communities is is so important, and you know this is one particular tradition that that I'm so proud of because you know being a, a Jewish Israeli, it it gets very hard to to find you know which which parts of my Jewish identity I I want to uh, reclaim. As it were, I I want to reclaim the non-oppressive parts. I want to reclaim the parts that are about resistance and about changing society, and you know, and about creating different futures for ourselves. Yeah, and I was gonna say that before Israel was was actually founded as a state, there were a lot of anti-Zionist Jews in Europe that spoke against it. Yeah. And and that is so important to remember because the dominant narrative is that, you know, all Jews must 
bow <laughs> to Israel. It is our, you know, the the Jewish state, our haven in the world. Um, it's mm. it's not. It's it's not something that all Jews wanted. It's it's a it's a colonial colonial practice, both you know practically and ideologically, that was brought here. You know, it's really important to acknowledge the fact that not all Jews were for um, establishing the state of Israel. A lot of people opposed it very vocally. And to this day, most Jewish people don't live in Israel. Israel is, you know, the again, it's it's the exception, not the rule. And and also, you know, when when it comes to Mizrahi Jewish people, before the state of Israel was established, there was Mizrahi Zionism that was so incredibly different from Ashkenazi Zionism that now, unfortunately, can, can't be reclaimed again. It was a sort of Zionism that encouraged shared existence within the Middle East um, instead of you know, being a, a colonial project, an imperialist project, um, an apartheid state, and, you know, which constantly... Um, aspires to ethnic cleansing. I think those things are so important to remember just to just to recognize that they can still be changed. Yeah. And I, and I think um, that I feel like more and more Jewish people are, are kind of waking up to this and but also understanding that their identity does not need to be tied to an ethno-nationalist state that they yeah. that many people have never visited like i i have yeah. um but i a lot lots of people have not and yeah i think that we're going through a kind of shift where jewishness without zionism is seeming like more of a possibility than it was maybe five years ago for me yeah i, I was gonna say something similar because like I, I grew up going to a reform synagogue in westchester new york and I loved the, my rabbi, and to me, Jewishness, as taught to me by him, was the the thing that I really remember was like it's about asking questions and questioning everything. And when we he would teach us Torah, it wasn't like okay, this page means this. He would say, what what questions does this bring up, and are we asking the right questions based on this? And then when I started thinking about my bisexuality, that was such a major theme of like questioning everything I thought and like, why do I look at the world this way? Could it be different? And so it really was so connected, my bisexuality and my Judaism, except for Israel. Like Israel was the thing growing up that was like, don't question that. Like we support Israel. And I do think you're right. It's starting to shift now, like even in my home congregation. Um, But it's only pretty recent that that we're allowed to ask those questions of Israel. Yeah. And and I think, you know, there's also something very sad about that, that it's only recently being acknowledged because the reason why it is, is that Israel's travesties have been exacerbating more and more. I mean, 
only a few months ago before um, the most recent election, we were, you know, a lot of people were really worried that we were going into a dictatorship. And, and you know, even now, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because, and, and I mean funny in a really sad, terrible way, because, um, you know, we're not at risk of being a dictatorship anymore, at least for now. But the government has not been changing its policies around Palestinians or, you know, the occupied territories or, you know, any of those issues. It's just, um, you know, it, it keeps getting worse. I, I think maybe like uh, two weeks after the, the new government uh, was sworn in, they, they were already bombing Gaza. Nothing is changing, and, and I think you know it's it's really really good that people are starting to wake up and recognize what horror is happening here. But the fact that they are only doing this now breaks my heart. Just to kind of give people a sense of the kind of politics in, in Israel-Palestine today, un, unlike the UK and the US, my sense is that the um, kind of younger generation is pretty right-wing in, in Jewish-Israeli society. Yeah. Um, and the, there's not that sense of what we get, which is kind of hope in the, um, in the younger generation. And also that it's not necessarily tied to tied to race in the same way the kind of fighting against racial oppression you might expect on the left in in this country i'm thinking specifically shiri about like lahava and the like mizrahim involved in that that there isn't necessarily an allegiance there so what in that kind of context where there's a both an older and a younger generation that are moving even further to the right in Jewish-Israeli society, and that there's quite a cross-racial um, but Jewish um, consensus on a, a very aggressive, violent kind of Zionism, what does queer leftism look like in, in Israel today? Where, where can it be found? Okay. Those are a lot of questions. I'm so sorry. I, I'm no, like it's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's the um, the issue of young people in Israel today, um, Jewish Israelis, makes me very, very sad. Like, okay, so about young people in Jewish-Israeli society right now, I think we're really seeing the, the marks of the education system uh, and the changes the government has made in it throughout the past um, 10 or 15 or even 20 years. Because the literally the, um, the school programs and materials, the curriculums have been changed to teach children more right-wing politics and more, uh, you know, religious, orthodox, um, very kind of supremacist, should I say, type of Jewishness, the kind that, that really constructs um, the Jewish people as, you know, as, as a 
dominant oppressive force within this geographical space in a way that is violent, entitled, and erasive. It's it's like it's really awful to see. I see a lot of young people that really hold racism against Palestinians as a positive value. An environment where, you know, during the um, the slaughter in Gaza, which was just a few months ago, it's completely mainstream and acceptable to wish for genocide in Gaza. And and you know, that that's what that's the environment where kids are growing up today. And like I don't know that many can even avoid that um, because like you need such a particularly strong conscience in opposition of everything you were taught in order to break through that. It's, yeah, it's, it's just really sad. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, and I see young people on the internet, on the English-speaking internet. I do think young people's discourse on Twitter is kind of scary sometimes. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but I also hear a lot of, you know, hopeful things about Gen Z, about, you know, how they hate capitalism and you know how how they really have a lot of political awareness that older people their age um didn't necessarily know that's very heartening i i don't really see it here no. there are you know young young feminists um young lgbt activists but the weight you know, the very crushing weight of indoctrination here in every part of our culture doesn't allow for much resistance. And does that mean that the kind of possibility for Jewish-Palestinian collaboration in this activism is near impossible? I mean, it will probably be different for Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinian Palestinians who live in the occupied territories that I know there are queer Palestinian groups that operate in in those spaces. Is there potential for for Jews in the Israeli state to work in solidarity and collaboration in a queer anti-occupation politics? So there is a very prominent anti-Zionist queer discourse here because like that that's like one of those things about Israel um and i think generally about places where oppressive forces are are so strongly tangible and recognizable it allows people to make the connections a lot better and to recognize oppression in in ways that that people in other places might not because you know, because you know, I'm thinking about the U.S. for example, because it has like a, a whole. Um, so the U.S. has a very strong narrative of um, liberalism, and you know, a, um, 
a notion that uh, the state doesn't interfere in in people's personal lives and and that narrative even though the US is really very terrible and has you know all of those oppressive structures exactly like here or elsewhere it's harder to recognize given that narrative that myth of you know of, of US being a, you know the the land of freedom so I do think being here, uh, living here, gives people a lot of opportunity to, to form resistance in, uh, in a way that is more focused, maybe, or, you know, more radical and more intersecting, because it's all just very clear within Zionism. The way it employs heterosexuality, the way it employs homosexuality, <laughs> and and those things, by the way, always go like uh, one is internally and one is externally. So in, internally, it employs heterosexuality, and externally, it speaks about homosexuality. Internally, it um, <laughs> you know there's such an emphasis on um, marriage, producing children, women as childbearers to produce. Um, you know, more soldiers and more Jews to, to fight the demographic war. While on the outside, yeah. they, you know, they utilize uh, feminist movements to, to be seen as, as more liberal. And, and you know, seeing all of these things that, that are so clearly connected here does create a lot of understanding. I mean, it generates a very clear-cut view. And I, I think, you know, there, the movement here is so unique. I, I have rarely seen something similar in um, English-speaking communities. The, the way that uh, the local queer, the radical queer community connects all of these issues of radical politics and intersectionality, uh, you know, like queerness and feminism and people of color, Zionism, you know, all, all the things. We do all the things. I love it. <laughs> uh, and specifically about um, collaboration and solidarity with Palestinian mm. activists. So collaboration is a little bit complicated because we are very, very segregated, not only in geographical terms, but also... Um, in cultural terms uh, and community terms. Um, so it is relatively rare to see Palestinian people within Jewish-Israeli communities and the other way around. We are just, we're two different societies. And for this reason, also a lot of Palestinian LGBT activists prefer not to collaborate with Jewish-Israeli organizations because we work in different contexts. They do work within their society and we do work within ours. So collaboration is complicated, but solidarity is abound. Um, We speak a lot um, against the occupation. We always make the, the connection between 
queerness and anti-Zionism. That is really the heart of the radical queer movement in Israel from its very onset. It focused on protesting the occupation within a specific queer and trans context and connecting our identities to this struggle and resistance. You spoke about how the kind of image that Israel puts out to the world is about being this kind of gay-friendly state and it's often kind of put forward in this kind of um, anti-Arab way of saying there's this haven of gay rights in the Middle East that you wouldn't find in, in any other country. And I'm wondering about how bisexuality plays into that and that process um, is something that we call um, homo-nationalism in academic writing, which is a term that was popularised by um, Jasper Pouar, who talks about how states in the 21st century have tended, or, or it's to describe the process whereby states will present themselves as progressive on gay rights as a means of showing how civilised they are as opposed to other states. Um, so that's kind of what she what she means by homo-nationalism there. And Israel is kind of a key example of, of mm-hmm. that. To what extent can bisexuality be co-opted by that kind of homo-nationalist rhetoric? Um, or is there something in... I think we'd all agree that there's something in bisexuality that can resist that as well. But mm-hmm. is it also vulnerable to being co-opted? So... First of all, I wanted to talk about homo-nationalism because it's really interesting to mention that the narrative in uh, Zionist discourse has switched over the decades. So in the years after, um, before or after Israel was founded as a state, the local Palestinian and Arab population was largely imagined as homosexual and bisexual and was described in that way in order to imagine them as more primitive and uh, and less cultured whereas in the recent you know 10 15 years the narrative has switched now um, the Palestinian Arab populations are, imagined as inherently homophobic and murderous of <laughs> their LGBT their LGBT populations, oppressive, inherently oppressive, um, etc. While Israel is being imagined as a gay haven of the Middle East, um, the gay Mecca, they often uh, use that phrase which I think you know, can, can also teach us a lot about the way discourses change and the way they stay the same, because the purpose is always to imagine the, you know, the colonialist project as inherently um, more cultured, more enlightened, more progressive um, than the local population as a way of justifying the colonialist and imperialist project. So that was important to note. And uh, about specifically about bisexuality, it's actually very interesting because um, in 2017, bisexuality was selected as 
the theme, the annual theme for that year's Pride Parade in Tel Aviv or Pride Month and all of its events. And <laughs> that was like interesting in, in a very, I say that in a very cynical way um, <laughs> because um, none of the organizations actually organized anything around bisexuality and and there are you know there are a few dozen lgbt organizations operating in tel aviv getting funded by the municipality which also funds uh the events of the pride parade which you know completely connects back to homo nationalism and pinkwashing because the tel aviv municipality also runs the gay tourism project which uses this type of discourse of, you know, Tel Aviv specifically as the gay haven in order to, to market lucrative vacations to white gay men from English-speaking countries. I've um, seen that marketing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they, they gain a lot of money from that too. You know, so there's, you know, it's, it's also about the capitalism and the way that, you know, homo-nationalism, the state, the pinkwashing, everything just, you know, rolls into this, like, big, terrible ball of, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 2017, I don't recall organizations actually organizing around bisexuality as a theme, whereas... Um, different themes in different years would always get, you know, a lot of events, a lot of, you know, lectures, panels, exhibitions, parties, whatever. So it's it's like the, the inside and outside thing again, because inside as part of the, you know, bisexuality being the theme of that year, we saw very little indeed. But outside the external discourse, we, we kept seeing like uh, a lot of PR about how, you know, oh my God, bisexuality was chosen as a theme for the Tel Aviv Pride. And, and like, oh, look at us. We are so inclusive. We are so, you know, it was a, a way to gain points on, you know, so-called liberalness or inclusivity. Mm-hmm in a way that I think is, is really cynical because, you know, it, it was used in the same way to, to promote colonialist discourses and justify Zionism. Yeah, and one of the things that, that you said in kind of our, our conversations before um, this chat was that one of the ways in which we can imagine bisexuality's power is through this idea of... Um, being the kind of secret agent within the state and that has like perfect alignment with a kind of Jewish anti-Zionist project within the state of Mm -hmm. Israel um, as well. Claire Hemmings talks about the bisexual double agent. There are all these great terms that we can really make use of. Um, So yeah, rather than being the bisexual who's... um, so happy with the fact that the word bisexual is on a sign for Tel Aviv Pride one year to actually think, actually, how can I be a secret agent within this? <laughs> yeah, how, how can we be an agent of chaos and, and make trouble 
for dominant structures. Mm, absolutely. So to kind of round this off, I suppose, we've covered so much ground, but I, I feel like neither Rob nor I could have you here and not try to ask you about absolutely everything. <laughs> thank you for entertaining that um, <laughs> in me um what i'm interested in is kind of looking to to the future it's a, maybe a kind of cliche way to to end an interview but i do feel like people are thinking about bisexuality and politics in in a way that is definitely influenced in many cases by your book serving as a kind of toolkit for that I'm not yeah I'm not just kind of kissing your ass I do feel that (laughs) um (laughs) that that is something um that really kind of catalyzed people into thinking um their bisexuality politically what is the kind of exciting biopolitics for you right now who who are you listening to what are you looking at what are you impressed by and where do you where do you see it going so I, I think there is a lot of good stuff happening on Twitter, ironically enough, because Twitter is a hellscape um, <laughs> where, you know, it, it's a game where, where the ultimate goal is to get people off of Twitter, which, which is horrible. But I think, you know, our little corner of by Twitter, which has, you know, has people like you too. It has... People like I, I don't want to name any names because I'm afraid I'm I'm gonna mispronounce. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, ba- basically all of my mutuals, uh-huh. uh, and I would probably say Maz Hedgehog is probably my favorite on Twitter. Such a brilliant writer about bisexuality and intersectionality, and and one of you know very few by black voices that we get to hear, which is so important. I, I just, I really appreciate um, the kind of conversations that can happen there. I, I wish we had more space than 120 characters. For sure. And Maz's work recently on bisexual anti-capitalism was so, it just lit a fire under me. I was like, I was hungry for it. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you. I can't, yeah, I can't say thank you enough. And it feels like these are unfinished conversations as well, but I'm sure we'll keep having. Um, But I think... I hope so. Yeah. And I think what to really kind of take from this is that, that the things that can be the most kind of challenging about being a bisexual in the world can also provide us with some great tools for changing it. And I think that that's such a strong message to have. Um, and thanks for helping us explore it together. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, yeah, Shiri, thank you so much for doing this. I, I, you know, Twitter, as you just said, is indeed a hellscape. But <laughs> since you've been, I think you got back on recently or something. Is that right? I, I mean, uh, you, I've, I've never actually been there, and I started oh. using it only, uh, I don't know, been oh my more than six months ago. Well, welcome yeah. to the Hellscape. Yes. It's great to have you there. <laughs> but really, your your voice and your 
your messages on there are like a guiding light and they've been really great for Thank me to, to see and read and and help integrate um and i and i met both of you through Twitter. So something yeah. came from there. Uh, yeah. And, th- and so thank you, Sherry, for doing this. And thank you so much, Jacob, for coming back and guest hosting. Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking me. Awesome. And the book, Notes for Bisexual Revolution. If you haven't read it, I've got my get name. your copy. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry, where's, <laughs> Sherry, where's yours? Sherry, where's yours? It's over there on the <laughs> Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. So uh, do you have any, like, more thoughts, final thoughts after all of this? I mean, it's just brilliant to kind of listen to to Shiri's insights around around so many topics. And it just makes me want to have kind of more spaces like this um, in order to, to discuss these things. What I would really kind of encourage people to do is the thing that, that Shiri demonstrates so well in her writing and her words, which is to use that in our identities that breaks the most rules um, in terms of what is normal socially and to really leverage that into um, our politics, um, to know that we don't need to convince the world that we are normal um, in order to be respected or in order to achieve political change it's often that within us that is least normal that has the most potential to allow us to imagine the world otherwise and I think that that's one of the great things about bisexuality is that we know that despite the fact that we live in a world that um, normalizes the idea that people are either gay or straight we know deep in our desires that that isn't true And so if we can know that, then we can know that so many of these rules that govern the world are not these fixed eternal things like some schools of political thought like like to think it is. Actually, they're much more flexible. And these things that we feel inside of us can be just as real and they can inform better futures. So that's where I would that's where I would leave it. I love that so much. I couldn't say it better. I love it. I, I will say something, but I can't say it better. But but it's like, you know, the, your episode last season on here, we called it Bad Bisexuals because it was mm-hmm. sort of about this idea of like embracing the things that make us different or that others, like the bad was in quotes that they see as threatening or, you know, mm-hmm. harmful. And actually those are the things that give us power. And like coming out was so hard for me and I repressed it and I pushed it away and I was scared because we live in a society that tells us this doesn't exist or this is wrong or you're confused. I mean, we could go down the list of biphobic things that we all internalized, but coming out has given me so much joy and strength and power and not only in the area of sexuality. I think that's what Mm -hmm. surprised me about coming out was not only did it feel freeing for you know my relationships and friendships and gender identity and but it also then affected all these other areas of my life my politics yeah. and other kinds of relationships and like gave me that ability to see the world differently and to not be locked in by how things are and 
and that's so powerful and it and it really stemmed from this foundation of fluid sexuality absolutely and if if neither of us had had not come out then we would not have the opportunity to do this and right. hopefully our conversation with Sherry goes to show that there's a kind of whole world of exploration to come um and I don't mean that kind of in the in the sexual <laughs> way even though it kind of came out like that but uh, our bisexuality can can go can go on to inform this stuff maybe maybe in the sexual way for you I don't know but yeah <laughs> maybe yeah. I mean the politics of sex is a whole different different episode and part of some of which we touched on in ours but yeah <laughs> okay we'll get we'll get back to that next season then uh, yeah yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Thank you so much, Rob, for for letting me um letting me co-host for these these couple of episodes. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for doing it and for coming back. Always good to be here. Cool. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Two Bye Guys is edited and produced by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our music is by Ross Mincer, our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman, and we are supported by The Gotham, formerly IFP. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys.